good morning. All right. Oh, there we go. It's good. Well, unfortunately, Brady didn't know that uh, the premier was going to step up and make major changes on Wednesday, so most of what he said this morning does not apply, unfortunately. What can I say? So what's happening? The men's breakfast has been canceled. The ladies' uh, night out has been uh, rescheduled. Uh, Sisterhood, which is our Tuesday morning uh, women's ministry. Here's the good news. They can't meet live, but we're going to Zoom it, and all five teachers are going to teach their classes. So I'm glad you guys know how to use the little Zoom application. That really helps a lot to continue to do midweek services. And unfortunately, the cafeteria closed. All right? So let's just pray that this is of short duration, this little time of extra restriction. And recognizing, you know, COVID is here, but I don't think it's always going to be as virulent as it has been just in the last little bit here. So let's stand together as we pray. I'd like us to pray for uh, people that are also experiencing challenges in their life way beyond what's going on with our COVID experience. Uh, Louise Broderick, who is a lady in our church family, this week went for a walk and was struck by a car and was killed. So uh, there's, there's lots of tragedy in life. We don't just have to go to uh, what's happening um, along this medical line as well. So we want to pray for that family. Also, I'd like us to remember in prayer our election on Monday. How many think that's kind of important that as Christians that we participate in the democratic process, that we engage in that process. I hope you've been praying, hope you've been reading, hope you're going to vote. Um, That would be great. That's a responsible thing to do. And you know, as Christians, I think we need to be responsible. How many think that's true? We need to uh, take responsibility seriously. So let's pray today that God would help us. How many here, you're here and there's a special need in your life and you'd like to lift it before God in prayers? Anybody? Okay, a number of you got your hands up. Okay. So Father, we just come before you today. I, you know, there's people in our church family battling cancer. There's some that are struggling with other uh, maladies. There's some that have COVID. Some have recovered, thank, thankfully for that. And Lord, I just pray as well that you would move supernaturally in many of these situations that we are bringing to your attention, Father. I pray that out of these experiences that we will mature, we will grow, we will learn to trust you more. Lord, I ask that you would bring uh, the right person in your heart and mind that would lead our nation in the days to come. I pray that our attitudes uh, towards those in authority would be uh, good, and that, Lord, we recognize that you are the ultimate authority, and that you have all things in control, Lord. Help us to have that quiet confidence in our heart that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We sang these beautiful songs, you don't fail us, you're a faithful God. These things are true of you, Lord, and I pray today as we, as we hear your word that you would speak into our lives. I pray for the Broderick family as they walk through a season of grief, Lord. I pray that you'd be with them in a very special way. And I, I just ask, Lord, that you would guide our days ahead, Father. Help us to see your hand in every twist and turn of our journey. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles. We'll continue our series. I know David McFarland, our guest, was going to be here this Sunday. I was looking forward to it, so you just have to have your pastor one more week. That's the way it works. But we're doing a series on Second Peter chapter 1, and we're going to hopefully finish that chapter this morning. And I've entitled the sermon, The Free Fall of Truth. 
You know, 30 years ago, sociologist Reginald Bibby published a book called Mosaic Madness. He's, uh, he's, he actually taught at the University of Lethbridge. So this is a, a Alberta a professor. And he spoke of the challenges facing the country in which we live in light of excessive individual rights and relativism. Now, how many know relativism is an idea that absolute truth does not exist? And so he writes in his book, Canadians deserve to be nominated as champions of choice. Even if the available options are not what we would choose, we regard it as a virtue to defend the rights of others to choose whatever they want. That's the Canadian way. Now, I don't have a problem with that. I think it's good that people have opportunity to choose. Increasingly, though, we have come to regard truth as a matter of personal preference. There's when we get on a little bit shaky ground with that statement. And then he says, as Canadians, we're coming precariously close to worshiping choice as an end in itself. In other words, we're, we celebrate this to such a degree that we think this is the most important thing. Rather than carefully examining the benefits and costs of available options and then sticking our necks out and suggesting what in fact might be best, we often take the easy way out. We decree with an authorization of pluralism that an educated, enlightened, and sophisticated Canadian is a person who tolerates almost everything and seldom takes a position on anything. And if a person dares to advocate a position in an ethical or moral or religious realm on things like premarital sex or marriage structure or homosexuality or religion, for example, such a person typically is viewed as narrow-minded. I've got to recall, this book was written 30 years ago. I read this 30 years ago. It's, you're going, wow, that's just what we're experiencing. We're living this stuff, right? He also mentions an archbishop from the Toronto area. He's retired. He's probably gone on to be at the Lord now. Who said to speak up on anything in Canada is to run the risk of being labeled a bigot, which means someone who's intolerant. Even such a seemingly simple central trait as honesty runs into trouble. While some 90% of Canadian adults and young people say that they place a high value on honesty, they show a reluctance to label any behavior dishonest. They are socialized to think that to do so is to sound judgmental. So what he's challenging is the fact that, you know, we're pressured by our culture to not say anything. In short, relativism has contributed to a situation in which many Canadians are not differentiating between being judgmental and showing sound judgment. So we have a hard time understanding, you know, if we say something, then people quickly point out, well, you're being a judgmental person. When in reality, we might be giving sound counsel and wisdom to a person that they may not want to hear, but that could be happening. He, he, uh, he says, we've been rewarded with citizens as a result who clamor to assert their diverse choices in viewpoint and behavior. And we're left with little sense of what is right, good, and true. Mindless relativism has destroyed those kinds of nerve endings. So if nothing is absolutely true and everything is a choice, how does that affect a society of people? That's, that's the question we're living in. We have been living in for quite a while. But I want to just stop and, and say something to us to help us understand this is not a novel concept. 
Truth has always been up for grabs. I, I'll take you all the way back to the very beginning in the book of Genesis when Satan came along to the couple in the garden and said, has God really said this? And so, you know, that was a challenging remark. Or consider a little later on when Jesus is now on trial before Pilate. And it's interesting what the issue is. I, I would argue that Jesus says this issue of my trial is really the issue is a truth issue. And, and it's said it this way in John's gospel. He said, you were a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Amen. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And of course, what's Pilate's response? What is truth? In other words, can you even determine what truth is? And sometimes in the past, Christians, we'd sit down and we make these propositions, these statements, this is the truth, right? And I'm not saying that that was necessarily wrong, but it needs to be more personalized. And when we look at what Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you and I are going to experience truth, what is truth? I would argue that truth is a person. Truth is the person called Jesus, and if you and I are following Jesus, we're walking in the truth, Amen. which is a very powerful thought. That there is a way to know. There is a right path, and the scriptures teach that. As a matter of fact, Jesus said there's really only two paths. A broad path that leads to destruction, a very narrow path that he invites us to follow on that path. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, if you walk in this narrow path, the path that I'm teaching you about, and following in my way, you're going to find a happier life. As a matter of fact, that's what the Beatitudes are. That's an expression of happiness. Happy are you when you do these things. Now, a little later on, Jesus is teaching again in John's gospel, and he says this. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Now, let me ask a question. If we don't hold to his teachings, can we say we're his disciples? That's an interesting thought. I'm just throwing that out there. Can, can I make that assumption? Because what we're about to see in Peter's letter right now is that Peter's being challenged as to what he's teaching the church. Don't you find that fascinating? An apostolic leader being challenged by people 30 years later as if what he's preaching may not even be the truth. What am I saying to us? Truth has always been a problem in society, no matter which society, and we're not any different than any of the other societies. As a matter of fact, Jesus said this, then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. Set you free. So you know, one of the great cries of this time, and another, and other times, has been, I want to be free. I want to be free. And I'm saying, if you walk in the truth, you will be free. If you don't walk in the truth, you probably won't experience the level of freedom that you'd like to have in your life. As a matter of fact, I'm, I would argue today that what people really want is a freedom from sin rather than, a, you know, a, I mean a freedom to sin rather than a freedom from sin. Because what sin does is entangles our lives and creates bondage for us. And it not only hurts us, but it hurts others. So what we confess to believe is very critical because it affects how you and I are going to live out our lives. So the way we think affects our behavior. Now, we're going to turn some very powerful texts and scriptures that gives us confidence 
that the message of the Bible has authority to shape our lives. Because, you know, we have to figure this out. You know, if you come from a very godly home and you've had good parenting models, maybe you've been instructed how to treat people correctly and all the rest of that, that's great. But a lot of people grow up in broken backgrounds and they don't know right from wrong. And I think our culture is struggling. Is there right? Is there wrong? What's the best way to live? We all have these choices now and people are confused. There's a lot of confusion. And the Bible says in the book of James that where there's confusion, we know there's every evil work. And we can see it today. There's so much confusion today. So what would be the right path to walk on? And Jesus is saying, follow me. I'll show you. I'll take you on that path. Now, what happens in the, the second letter here that Peter's writing, he's being questioned by false teachers in the church. They have deviated from the truth, and because of this, it has created a belligerent attitude and sinful lifestyles. And so in 2 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to just, we're going to look at chapter 1, just the conclusion of it, but I want to just give you a sense of why he's saying what he's going to say in chapter 1. Because he's moving towards addressing this problem in chapter 2. It says in verse 1 of chapter 2, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So he says in the past, this is what it was like. This is what it's like now. There'll always be this problem. He says, they secretly introduced destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. And then he says, many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. So it's interesting, he says, this is the characteristic of false teaching. It actually leads to depraved conduct. Well, you know what the word depraved means? Depravity means uh, somebody who's uh, broken. I mean, morally broken. And eventually that person is going to discredit the gospel of Jesus Christ if they're in the church and they start living like this. Then he goes on to say in verse 10, he says, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of the flesh, or another translation says the sinful nature, and they despise authority. Now, I think it's fascinating, you know, that we're living in a culture today that we have very little respect for authority. How many say that's probably true? We have no respect for God, and when we have people in leadership, we, we, we question everything they do. I'm, I'm not saying that they don't always do uh, the right thing, because I think sometimes they do the wrong thing. But it just seems like no matter what they do, we're going to question it. And, we, we, and it's not just questioning here. It's now despising it. You notice the strong language there. And I think there's something to be said for that attitude that's wrong. And Peter's going to talk about that. So I'm going to take a look here and leave us with three powerful challenges to stand for biblical truth and why it's critical that we do. Because I'm trying to point out to us, including myself, that if we don't do the right things, we don't follow the truth, it's going to get us into all kinds of trouble. We're not going to be free. So the first comes in the form of a personal reminder. And what we see here is Peter wants the followers of Christ to remember these critical truths to keep, keep them from falling. And Peter knows this from firsthand experience because we've looked at it earlier. Peter denied Jesus and then was eventually restored and was strengthened. And Jesus said, when you're restored, you're going to strengthen other people. So he begins this letter in this way in verse uh, 12. We're picking up, we did chapter, the first part of the chapter there last two weeks. So I will always remind you of these things, 
even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Michael Green says, it is at first sight somewhat surprising that Peter should address his readers as established in the truth you now have. In other words, in light of how, uh, you know, he's trying to tell them, I don't want you to fall, I want you to stand. Last week I talked about the value of adding to your faith moral virtue. So he's challenging us to make our calling and election sure. And now he says, oh, by the way, you guys are, you know, I'm going to remind you of the things because you are established in the truth. But then he, then he is going to challenge them some more. So at first sight, he says here, it's, it's surprising that he would address them this way. From what he has already said and what he has yet to say about them, it's very evident that their lives left a lot to be desired. Oh, that's not, that's not a great thing to hear, right? And yet they were established Christians. You know, a lot of times we can be Christians for a long time and yet there's, there's major gaps in our, in our life. There's things that, are, you know, that need to be changed. He goes on, surely this is a solemn warning that it is all too easy for those who have been Christians for sometimes to lapse into serious sin or into doctrinal error. In other words, heresy. Uh, there is no safeguard against this except living in direct touch with the Lord and Savior. And that's so true. So <clears throat> Peter now begins by warning us against carelessness as believers. Uh, and you know, he uses this word here in the NIV. He, he, it says... It's right to refresh your memory. Now, that word refresh is not really giving us the sense of gravity to which Peter's saying. As a matter of fact, another translation says, I want to stir up your minds by way of remembrance. Uh, the Greek word is literally, uh, as R.C. Sproul points out, is used when someone is being roused from sleep. You ever had somebody falling asleep and they're, like, like they're slumbering, they're, they're sleeping, and you, then you, you go in there and you're gonna wake them up, right? So you start rousing them and they come out of a slumbered state. You know, so what is he saying is he says, I'm trying to wake up sleeping Christians. That's what he's telling us here. Is, there, you know, is it possible, how many have ever had that experience in life that you're actually, uh, you're actually slumbering? Spiritually, I mean, you have great stretches in your life where you have passion, you're excited, and then all of a sudden there's seasons where you just almost feel like you've been doing nothing. It's almost like a slumbering state, you know? Or maybe you've done this experience. You're driving down the road and you got your mind on things, and the next thing you know, you've driven to a location that you normally go to, but that was not your intention, you know? I've actually driven to the church, and that was not my intention to come here, you know? I, just, I was just kind of in, you know, automatic mode. Anybody have that experience? You just say, oh, Pastor, you're getting old. That's what you're doing. No, it's because you got your mind on other things, and you kind of program your mind to do something, and then, boom, it just goes automatically. And I think sometimes as Christians, we set it on autopilot. We're on autopilot. That's what we're doing. We've set Christianity. I'm going, click, I'm on auto. And we're kind of snoozing along, and you know, and it gets us into trouble because remember when Peter and I, I just want to remind us of this text. Uh, Jesus is talking to him in the upper room with the disciples, and he says, "Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat." Remember Simon's response. Well, then Jesus says, Simon, I've prayed that your faith might not fail, but when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. This is what Peter's gonna do now. He's gonna strengthen his brothers. Why? Because he had failed. What was he doing in the garden? Jesus says, watch and pray, be vigilant. The enemy is gonna come against you. And all of the disciples were sleeping. 
And so they were no match for the crisis that was, upon, that was coming upon them. And that's, that's one of my arguments why it's so important that you and I be vigilant in our prayer life. You know, why, do, why does it take a crisis before we really start praying? Why don't we just develop a very vigilant and virulent prayer life that there's energy to it and we're seeking God and we're getting close to God so when the crisis comes, we're strong, we're able to handle that hour of crisis. But a lot of Christians are sleeping. That's what, and when the crisis comes, they just get blown away and their responses are not the right kind of responses. They just kind of fall apart. They mean to do well, but they fail in the crisis because they're not prepared for it. Well, I love Peter's response. Yeah, I'm ready to go uh, to prison and to death. And of course, Jesus says, before the rooster crows three times, you'll deny that you know me. But Peter's restored. Aren't you glad for a God who's loving and restorative? God's a forgiving God. He, he gives us so many chances, it's unbelievable. He's so merciful. And here in 2 Peter, we find P Peter faithful to that charge. He's strengthening, he's challenging. Peter's concern for others now is extended beyond his life. So now he, he's recognizing something is about to happen. And in verse 15, he says, I'm gonna make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So what is he gonna do? He's gonna leave them a written legacy. You know, how many recognize that when you're about to leave the planet and you call your family together, probably the words you're gonna say, people are gonna pay attention to. This is kind of what Peter's second letter is like. I'm getting ready to leave. I've got some things to lay down here that I think you need to hear. And oh, by the way, so you won't forget it, I'm gonna write it down for you. I'm leaving you a written record of it. Uh, the ancient church fathers like Irenaeus and Clement, who both lived in the second century, believed that Peter meant here was an allusion to actually Mark's gospel. And uh, Mark, uh, Michael Green says it this way, it seems probable that Irenaeus knew this passage in 2 Peter and took the implicit promise to refer to Mark's gospel. Now, we already know he's leaving them 2 Peter. He's left them 1 Peter. So we know he's left them written records. But, he, but many scholars believe that the gospel of Mark is actually Peter's testimony. It's actually Peter telling Mark that all the time he had walked with Jesus, he's giving, you know, you're looking at the gospel of, of Peter, really, when Mark is writing it down. You're seeing it from Peter's lens, you know. And it says, in recent years, a fascinating discovery from Cave 7 at Qumran has emerged which may support Irenaeus' assumption that 2 Peter 1.15 refers to the gospel of Mark. Now, nobody can prove that or not, but it doesn't matter. He's left something of a legacy, and uh, I don't know, I was challenged this yesterday. Actually, it's, I had a little word from God, and I was praying, and I was thinking, Lord, I need to get, should I be writing this second book? And then I started reading this, and I felt like God's going, well, Peter left a written legacy. Maybe you need to keep writing. <laughs> That's a good idea. Okay, number two, the second challenge to stand for biblical truth, the first comes in a form of a personal reminder. Now it comes in a form of a personal report. How many know that testimonies are powerful? That when we share our story, we share our experience with people. I mean, you can argue theology, you can argue, you know, we can argue about all kinds of stuff, but nobody can really argue 
your experience. That's your experience. They may not agree with you, your conclusions, or all the rest of it be going, but hey, this is my experience. This is what happened to me. And people, I think it's powerful when we do that. Actually, Revelation says when we share our testimony, we're actually overcoming the power of darkness in our life. We're reminding ourselves of the glory and the grace of God in our souls. It's a powerful thing to do. But now 30 years have gone by since Peter you know, saw Jesus ascending into heaven. 30 years have gone by. Peter's older now. He's ready to leave. As a matter of fact, he talks about his body as a tent. How many get the idea that tents are not permanent dwelling places? So I just want to encourage you right now. You know, the body that you have, it's not permanent, guys. You have a temporary dwelling place. You and I have a new body to look forward to. And I don't just mean replacement parts from the hospital. I'm talking about a brand new body. Isn't that a great thing? God's going to give us a brand new body. Well, some of you are happy about that. You know. <laughs> David Helms basically shares the challenge that this, this older uh, person has. Now, how many are a little bit shocked that the apostle Peter would be challenged by false teachers? Aren't you shocked by that? Is anybody shocked that Paul was challenged by false teachers as well? Like these apostles had to deal with people telling them that they knew more than the apostles. I always think that's fascinating, but you know, you, that happens. He says, uh, other more enlightened teachers have arrived in the church scene and they've begun to question, what is this dark language about Jesus coming again to judge the living and the dead? I always find that false teaching always hits on things like there is no hell, no judgment. They always focus on those themes. It's really interesting. Certainly this must be false. After all, the apostles themselves are all passing away before our very eyes and there's no sign of Christ's return. Uh, in summarizing the accusation against Peter and the apostles this way, the apostles' belief in the final judgment, a day when Jesus would hold each of us accountable for moral and ethical infidelity, is simply the stuff of fairy tales that stems largely from the fertility of Peter's imagination. That's the accusation, that Peter's following basically cleverly invented stories. We don't buy it, Peter. We don't buy what you're saying. So Peter has to respond to this, and in verse 16 he says, look, uh, well, here's the implication of not buying that there's a judgment. Well, then we don't have to be ethical. We don't have to be moral because, you know, we're not going to be accountable. Here's the problem when you believe in a moral and a, and a created God, that you and I are going to stand before God and have to give an account. That freaks people out. That's why we don't want to believe in God, because if we do, then we're going to have to live a certain way. We don't want to do that as a culture, generally speaking. Uh, but Peter says, listen, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He said, listen, we had an amazing experience. Matter of fact, in verse 17, he says, he received honor and glory from God the Father, speaking of Christ. When the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice and came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So when did this happen? Well, this is alluding to a time in uh, Peter's life when he had, an, he had an experience that he could never forget. And Matthew tells us about this experience in Matthew chapter 17. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. 
It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured. That word transfigured means he was radically changed before them. His face now shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. What happened was the nature of Jesus as God started seeping through his human body. All of a sudden, they saw the glory of God in the person of Jesus. Can you imagine that experience? How many of that would be kind of incredible to be standing on the Mount of Transfiguration when this is happening? Well, just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. I always love this passage. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Well, this tells me that when you and I are in eternity, we're gonna know things we would have never been able to know. We're gonna know things like who these people are. We're gonna go, oh, that's Paul, oh, that's Mary, oh, that's Luke, oh, that's you know, James, oh, that's you know, so-and-so. We're just gonna know these things. They seem to know who these people were. I don't know if they knew it because Jesus mentioned them by name or what, but something's going on here. And then it says, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What is he saying? Let's camp out here. What a camp meeting we're gonna have here, I'll tell you. We got Jesus, Moses, and Elijah there. How many think that'd be pretty impressive to have those three people hanging around? And and these other three guys are standing there listening to this. It says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased, listen to him. So the father is now basically saying, everything Jesus says, you better pay attention to. You know, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Now, I don't know about you, but if you hear the audible voice of God, it'll freak you right out. Certainly it did these guys. I mean, they're, they're having some incredibly intense moment here. The supernatural is big time happening to these guys. But Jesus comes and he touches them. He says, get up, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. So Peter's pointing out, that the gospel he's been preaching is not just make-believe stuff. He said, listen, we experienced it. This is our experience. This is my testimony. And Peter, like Paul, were not ashamed of the gospel, for they both knew it was the power of God that would bring salvation to the human heart. One of the things that's happening in our culture today is when you preach the gospel, when you preach Christ crucified, sometimes we don't understand what that really means. Paul says, I only preach Christ and him crucified. And the reason I'm being persecuted is because I'm preaching Christ and him crucified. Why, what's he mean by all of that? He means simply this, that when you and I preach Christ crucified, what we're saying is God had to come to earth, become a man, and die on a cross because you and I were sinners. And how many know people don't want to be told they're sinners? Does anybody know that? That goes against uh, the nature of people. They don't want to be told they're wrong. So the moment you preach that kind of a sermon, you're going to get in trouble. As a matter of fact, if you even talk about this to people, say they need a savior, they're going to get excited. Because our culture is basically telling people over and over again that humanity were basically good. And I'm going to argue, here's what I'd say to people. Yes, we're made in the image of God. Yes, there's a capability of being really good. And yes, we can be moral, but we have also a sinful nature and that you don't have to teach people to do bad things. How many parents tell their little kids growing up, well, I want you to steal, or I want you to lie? Very few parents do that, but some might. But you know, it's not interesting that by nature, we can do the wrong thing. You know, by, by you know, certain motivations, sometimes fear causes us to tell the untruth, 
right? Those are the kind of things that happen in our lives. Where do we get that stuff from? By nature, we have a sin issue to deal with, and God has addressed it through the cross of Christ. Now, let me move on here and talk about the third challenge. And it comes in the form of prophetic revelation. So we've taken a look. First of all, Peter reminds us, I'm about ready to leave. You know, then he, then he gives a testimony. This is the gospel. I know it. I've experienced it, even though I'm being criticized for it. And now he says, I want you to understand, we have this amazing word from God from the Old Testament, this prophetic message. Uh, not only do we have the apostles' encounter with God, but we have the written scriptures coming from the hand of the earlier prophets. Verse 19, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, let me ask you a question. How many feel like we're living in a dark time? There's a lot of darkness, isn't it? And, you know, darkness speaks of I can't see clearly. Darkness means, you know, I could easily get out of bed that night and stub my toe. I mean, it's really easy uh, to, to see things wrongly. Have you ever, you know, you know, you turn the lights on and you go, oh, that's what that is. You know what I'm talking about? Because when you're in the dark, you don't see it as very clearly. But you're waiting for the light to shine. You're waiting for the morning sun to start shining. And it's interesting, the light that shines in our darkness is actually the morning star. And who is the morning star? Well, the book of Revelation 22:16, Jesus says, I am the morning star. Now, in the ancient world, the planet Venus was considered the morning star. And it usually shone just before the sun rose up. It's interesting. And so in this time of great darkness, this time where we're not seeing clearly, we have a hope that there's a light going to shine. First of all, it shines in us. It, the light of God's love shines into our lives. You know, God's light, his word shines into our hearts, and, it, and we move from a place of darkness to light. That's powerful imagery. Paul even talks about that in, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. But here we see that, you know, when, when, we, when we come to the word of God, it's amazing how it reveals Christ to us. And Jesus himself confronted the religious people of his own day, and he said to them, hey, listen, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. I want to just make a statement. The scriptures don't give us eternal life. Jesus is the one that gives us eternal life. But the scriptures are the pathway to discovering who Jesus is. That's why they're important. He says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, Jesus is saying to them. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So, you know, it's not just in the scriptures themselves. It's in the person of Christ. Peter now gives us some insight into the nature of biblical inspiration. How did God get his word to us, if they're that important? How did God make his will known to us? And then we read these words. And so Peter and Paul both talk about inspiration. We'll pick on Peter here, because we're there. He says in verse 20, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. In other words, these guys are not just coming up with ideas about God and writing them down. That's not what's happening here. Matter of fact, he goes on, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. It's not something we're, we're, it's coming from humanity. But prophets 
though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So now we have this amazing cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Michael Green says it this way, the relative parts played by the human and the divine authors are not mentioned, only the fact of their cooperation. So when we're reading the scriptures, we, you know, a lot of people have a funny idea about inspiration. They have this kind of, uh, you know, God is the, uh, you, you know, they're, they're just taking dic- dictation down. You know, like God is speaking and these guys are just writing it verbatim what he's saying. That's not what's happening. It's an inspiration that's different than that. It's like they all of a sudden are experiencing God and he's putting ideas in their minds. He goes on to say, he uses a fascinating metaphor, Peter does, this this maritime metaphor where the word for carried along is also found in the book of Acts when it's speaking of a ship being carried along by the wind. Okay, so how many have ever gone sailing? Anybody gone sailing? I've gone sailing. Now, when you go sailing, what happens is when there's no wind, what you end up doing is you're trying to work with the current, right? You're trying to get a little movement with the current. What you're really hoping for is wind. When wind comes along, you put your sail up, and then you can really move along. You're going to be carried along by the sail, and that's exactly what happens. The prophets, in a sense, have raised their sail, so to speak, They are obedient and receptive to God and the Holy Spirit fills them and carries their craft along in the direction he wishes. And so they speak and God is speaking. They're saying things and sometimes they're saying things and then they go, huh, I don't fully understand exactly what I just said, but I know this is what God told me to say. They're kind of inquiring. They don't quite understand the full picture of what God was telling them to tell the people that they were called to. And sometimes it had information that went way beyond them into the future. Now, I want to just stop here for a second and and just say this. I've been working on a course that I'm going to teach next month. And, you you know, sometimes you do a course and you're really excited about the topic. It's kind of fun to teach, right? Well, this isn't one of those courses. This is a course I'm going to teach because I think it's needed to be taught. And the course is entitled The Spirit of Truth and the Spirit of Error. What's wrong? And in this course, what I'm trying to do is explain that what's happening is that the battle for truth that's always gone on, right from the very beginning, remember I said that to you? It's always been going along. We have a message. The gospel is a message. And what Satan, the adversary of God and his people, does is tries to distort the message. He doesn't eradicate it completely. He just wants to put enough distortion that the message goes off track. And it becomes a false message then. And people start putting their hope in a false message rather than the true message. And I was, as I was reading through this and working on it, I realized, you know, not a lot of people are talking about this right now, which I think is too bad because, you know, the New Testament, of the 27 New Testament books, 22 of them are dealing with false teaching. So how many think that might be a big deal? But we don't even think about it. And I'm going to give you a reason. Uh, as I'm looking, I was working on this one chapter and it's, uh, there's a new uh, grid in Christianity today. It probably started about 20, 30 years ago. It's, it's new to our time. It's not new to the church. In the past, it's been there under different names. But it's new. It was called the Emergent Church. And then it moved to Progressive Christianity. And 
So I thought, okay, I got to look at this. And so I've read a number of books. I read a book called Another Gospel by Alicia Childers, who talks about progressive Christianity. But you, when you're studying something, when you're working on thesis and things like that, you always go to the original source. So I had to buy some of these writings by some of these guys that are teaching this. So I read a book about 10 years ago now, published 10 years ago, by Brian McLaren called A New Kind of Christianity. And I said to myself as I'm reading through this book, it's neither new nor is it Christianity. So I want to give you an idea of what he says about the Bible. Now, you know, I'm not, you're saying, well, you're picking on this guy. I'm saying, yeah, I am, because he's writing this stuff and he's confusing a lot of Christians. And he's actually opposing what I've just said in these scriptures here by Peter. As a matter of fact, his approach is he's opposed to historical Christianity. He says, we've had too many abuses. So he says, here's my new approach to Christianity. Just quote him. Let him speak for himself. He says that you guys that are historical or traditional as you see the Bible as like your constitution. He says, you see it as your rule of faith and practice. I go, yeah, that's exactly how I see it. So he says, then he, he writes this. In addition, I hope you will understand that just as you cannot in good conscience cease to see the Bible as a constitution, which is true, I can't, many of us can no longer continue to do so in good conscience. In other words, we have a totally opposite approach. That's why, he says, we're on a quest to find other ways to cherish, understand, and follow the Bible. Doesn't that sound nice? He's saying, you guys are stuck in the mud. We're gonna find a new way to understand it. I'm going, okay, what's your new way? So now what he does is, Regarding everything that you and I have been taught, he's now going to question everything we've been taught, okay? So let's just pick on the nature of God for a minute. I think this is fascinating because it really brings it out. He's trying to explain to us uh, that we need to develop a mature view of God. And he says it's not so much that God changes, but the characters in the narrative portray God over time as a more gentle and loving person. The premise of these teachers is that the writers, uh, is that the progressive progression of revelation was that the biblical writers came to a better understanding as to the nature of God. Not that God changed, but they got a better understanding of it. So he writes it this way. And finally, we were studying the Bible together over a period of time. We would trace the maturation process. That means the maturing, the, the development among biblical writers regarding God's character. And in some passages, God appears violent, retaliatory, given to favoritism, careless of human life. But over time, the image of God that predominates is gentle rather than cruel, compassionate rather than violent, fair to all rather than biased towards some, and forgiving rather than retaliatory. In this more mature view, God is not capricious, which means God's not uh, evil <laughs> or you know, mean bloodthirsty, hateful, or prone to fits of vengeful rage. Rather, God loves justice, kindness, reconciliation, peace. God's grace gets the final word. How many say that? Doesn't that sound nice? It really does appeal to people. I can see why they're thinking this is a good idea. But here's what I say in response to this. So, the problem with McLaren's portrayal of God is simply an imposed understanding. God, right from the opening pages of scripture, is not just just, but he's also loving, forgiving, and compassionate. Why? Because go back to the story in the garden. What did God do? He didn't kill Adam and Eve. 
What did he do? He made a provision for them and he made a substitute for them and God walked with them. Yeah, he moved them outside of the Garden of Eden, but he did it for a reason. He didn't want them to live in a state of perpetual sin for the rest of their lives. So, you know, it's a matter of interpreting what you think about God. See, here's my problem with this. And McLaren will say, yeah, the nature of God's not the problem because God doesn't change. How many know God is unchanging? And when I read about Jesus, is Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever? And actually, Jesus is God. He is Yahweh. So if you're going to, you know, he's trying to slice and dice a little bit here where Jesus is the good guy and, you know, and the God the Father is not quite as nice. No, they're the same. Because Jesus is the embodiment of the Father, and if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. So, uh, we see that consistently throughout the Scriptures, the nature of God. We see times of judgment expressed in the New Testament, where Jesus himself says, unless we repent, we'll also experience God's judgment. So, don't tell me Jesus is kind, gentle, and all the rest of it. You know, it doesn't work. You've got to follow the whole script. Now, in light of this unfolding understanding, this is now, uh, I'm going to make sure I get this. Yeah, McLaren's saying, in light of this unfolding understanding of biblical revelation, when we ask why God, notice he puts a little G here. I don't know why he does that. I'm, I'm just quoting him. Why God appears so violent in some passages of the Bibles, we can suggest this hypothesis. I'll tell you why these, that God seems kind of mean at times. This is his theory. A hypothesis is a theory. If the human beings who produced those passages were violent in their own development, they would naturally see God through the lens of their experience. So what is he saying? He's saying the reason why God appears bad in some places is because the writer has the problem. It's their imperfect viewpoint of who God is. Uh, excuse me, Brian, let's go back here to what I just read in Peter. Peter goes, no, that's not how people get the message. The people that are being full of the Spirit are giving God's message. Now, how many in this room, have you ever had this happen to you? You're saying something, and somebody says, oh, you mean this, and then they say what you said, and it's not what you mean at all. And you go, no, no, that's not what I said. Anybody have that experience? Okay. Let me ask you a question. Do you appreciate the fact that somebody is making you say something you're not saying? How many appreciate that? You like that? Oh, okay, you don't like that. Well, I don't like it either. Hey, I don't think God appreciates it when we're saying, well, that's not what God meant. Why don't we just let God speak for himself? You see, the problem with taking this viewpoint on and saying, oh, the, these, the problem is the, the, the writers are the problem and not God? I'm going, that's a cop-out. That's not the way it is. That's your hypothesis. And, you know, that's a... So what I write down here, my response to this, what McLaren is simply stating is that we don't have to adhere to what is being written. In his hypothesis, he has negated the authority of Scripture over our lives, basically by saying, well, that's not really what it's like. And so we can now cherry-pick you know what I mean? Cherry picking, we can just take the text we like and agree with and then just discard the ones that we're not comfortable with. You know, a lot of people want to do that. A lot of people want to take a Bible and say, well, I don't like. And I'm going to say this, just take one more minute here. Marcion was a second or third century heretic who thought the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament 
Are you, do you guys like this? And so what he did was he canonized certain books of the Bible to fit his viewpoint. And he got rid of all the Old Testament. He took just the four Gospels. He got rid of the Apostle. Uh, well, he kept the Apostle Paul, got rid of the Gospels because they had too many allusions to the God of the Old Testament. And he had about 10 books. And then he started cherry-picking the ones in Paul's writings that he didn't agree with. He pulled those things out as well. See, that's what we can start doing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a Christianity that suits me, that I'm comfortable with. You know, I don't like some parts of the Bible. I'm, I'm just going to get rid of them. And here's the problem with that. In essence, what we're doing is fashioning God after our image. Rather than allowing God to say, I'm not like what you think. I want to transform you. So the journey for me as a, a human being is, I want to know who God really is. Amen. And though I'm not exactly like him, instead of making excuses and saying, God, I want you to be like the way my culture wants you to be or the way I want you to be, I now am going to learn and accept who you are and allow you to transform me. I'm going to really mess with your heads and just say this. I think God is far more loving and compassionate than most of us ever could fully comprehend. I, I think what he's saying, what the Bible's really showing us is God is really, he hates sin. And why does he hate sin so much? Because it's so destructive to us and to our societies. That's why he's against it. You know, and we make light of sin as human beings, generally speaking, and, and we don't see the 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 devastation and wake of all of that stuff happening over there. So I put down what, so what are the implications then of inspiration? Well, simply, God has authority in my life and your life. God has a message for us, and we either accept it or we don't. The scriptures are inspired to instruct us and give us wisdom to lead us to Christ with whom we receive salvation. I love how it says here in Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. Paul's talking to Timothy. He grew up in a Christian home. His mom was a Christian. His grandmother was a Christian. He could see their godly lives. He could see the consistency in their lives. And then he says this, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise. I love that. Wisdom. And when you study wisdom literature, you start to find out there's really, you're either wise or you're not wise. You're either walking in wisdom or you're walking in folly. You're either fearing God or you don't fear God. It's real simple. We're making all these options and choices that don't exist. There's a narrow road and a broad road. That's it. And he says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the narrow path. All scripture is what? God breathed. Uh, some translations say in, inspired. That's, but the, word, the Greek word just means God breathed. And is useful for what? Teaching? Rebuking. How many go, I really love getting rebuked? Well, most of us don't. But you know what? If, if we're wrong, sometimes we probably need to be rebuked. You know, corrected or trained in righteousness. So God isn't just always going to tell me what I want to hear. Sometimes I need to be told what I need to hear. And sometimes I'm wrong and I need to be corrected. You know, I have a good corrector. You know, if the Holy Spirit doesn't do it, I'm, I'm sure Patty's listening. She'll help me out. She'll correct me. You know, you know, I tease her a little bit. But that's okay. It's good. But isn't that true? Or, you know, I can be corrected by all kinds of people. And so can you. And sometimes our kids correct us. Isn't that true? 
but so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So let me, let me close with these couple of quotes. <clears throat> Francis Beck and Gregory Cole remind us regarding the nature of relativism. It says, if relativism were true, this would be a world in which nothing is wrong. Think about that statement. Because if there's no truth, then everybody could do whatever they wanted to, and there would be no wrong. But how many know there are things that are wrong? Intrinsically, we know things are wrong. How many know somebody beating somebody senseless for no reason is wrong? How many just intuitively we know some things are wrong? But if relativism were true, there would be a world in which nothing is wrong, nothing is considered evil or good, nothing worthy of praise or blame. Wow. It would be a world in which justice and fairness are meaningless concepts in which there would be no accountability, no possibility of moral improvement, and no moral discourse. And it would be a world in which there is no tolerance. Because if you don't agree with that, then, then you become intolerant. And that's what happens. Intrinsically, we know this is false. We are driven by moral considerations and yet I see today we're racing towards this cliff into the free fall of truth. But I've tried to warn us it's been happening all along. According to British historian Paul Johnson, Jesus' teachings re remains a particular, a peculiar relevance today for his central theme is that God, not man, is the final authority. God has rights, human beings have duties. We deny God his rights at our own peril. So in other words, it goes real simple. I can just say, you know, I'm gonna do my thing and forget about what God has to say. But let me just warn us, if we do that, we'll suffer. But if we say, you know, I really wanna to get to know who the true and the living God is. I wanna walk in the truth. I wanna discover Jesus. I wanna follow this pathway. It changes the whole course of our lives. I believe that the, the brokenness that sin has brought into our lives, either self-inflicted or inflicted upon us, can be healed through the grace and the love of Jesus in our lives. And I'm gonna have a stand as we close in a word of prayer. Maybe you're here today and you're listening and you're going, wow, this was pretty intense. I know it was intense. You know, I don't, this is, I should have said, before you guys start this morning, put your thinking caps on because I'm gonna, this is gonna be an intense uh, presentation. I want, to, I want to make you think. I want to challenge your thinking. I want to warn you against false teaching. But even more than that, I want to have you embrace Christ. I want to help you to come to the truth. I want you to become, experience the person of Jesus and actually receive that healing that he wants to bring into our lives and to get to know who God really is and not some sort of a distorted caricature of who God is. But really get to know who God is. What an amazing person he is. I, I believe God's the most exciting person, the most interesting person, the most dynamic person, the most loving, the most forgiving, the most gracious person that you and I can ever meet. And so I want to invite you to. And maybe you're here this morning, just with every head bowed for a moment. Maybe you're here this morning and say, you know, I've never, I, I, I didn't even know that there was such a thing as an absolute truth. I kind of knew that it was right and wrong, but to really know the truth, to really know the person of the truth, Jesus, I don't know that, but I want to know that today. Maybe you're listening live stream, and I want to just invite you. You know, it starts with just having this introductory conversation where you say, God, I, I know there's a God in heaven. I know there's a creator in the world, 
but I want to know you personally. And you've revealed yourself to us by coming to the planet, and your name is Jesus of Nazareth. And I want to receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. And if you do that, that's your prayer. He will come into your life. The Spirit of the living God will come into your life, and He will forgive your sins and heal you and begin a journey with you to wholeness. He'll do that. And if that's you, just raise your hand. I want to pray in the auditorium here. Yes, God bless you. Yeah, a number of you. That's awesome. Good. Beautiful. Yeah, that's awesome. So while you're standing here, just in your heart of hearts, just say, I want to know you, Jesus. Would you come and forgive me and come into my life? I want you to just, I want to know you. I want to get to know you better and better. I want to walk with you. I want to experience your life. I want to know this life eternal. That's your prayer. He's going to hear that cry. Let us know if you've made that choice because we want to help you grow as a Christian. And then maybe we're here today and you say, you know, Pastor, today I was sleeping. I needed to be awakened. I, you know, as Christians, we can get, you know, we've been a Christian a long time, but we can just start kicking into auto, automatic, automatic, you know. We're an auto, autopilot. And yet, I'm telling you right now, there's a tre tremendous battle for our souls. But I think what's happening today is we're focusing on the wrong things. The real battle is being fought over who Christ is and the gospel. That's where the battle is being fought. And a lot of Christians are being seduced and fighting, I think, some other battles. The freedom comes in knowing Jesus. The freedom comes in serving him and being obedient to him. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. No human being can take away that freedom. Oh, you can say, well, yeah, but you can be in political bondage. Yeah, that's true. But they can't take away that freedom from me. I can be sitting in a prison cell, but they can't take that freedom from me. I know the truth and the truth has set me free. Maybe God has stirred your heart as a Christian today. You're saying, you know what? I need to ask Jesus to forgive me because I've been like Peter. I've been sleeping in the garden. You know, I need to become more vigilant in my pursuit of God. And so, Lord, I just thank you this morning that you've heard us. You've been in amongst us. You've listened to our conversation. I know it's been a dialogue right now, but I pray that there'll be an engagement of what I've shared this morning in our minds and hearts in the days to come and that the truth that we've heard this morning about who you are and how great you are and, and some of the challenges that are presenting themselves to us as a church today in this culture of relativism and individual rights. Lord, I pray, deliver us and help us to be awake and vigilant and conversing with you daily. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.